We spent the afternoon exploring all sorts of tools and techniques, and I hope it was helpful to you to learn new tools to support you in the work that you're doing. And tonight I want to now bring us back more into our own personal practice realm and touch on a topic that is really something really important to me personally. And I think Susan was touching on it the other, last night when she talked, when she was talking about what is the intention of what we're doing here. And she talked about transforming individuals and also the importance of kindness. And so I want to look at the concept of self-compassion and talk about it primarily how it applies to us. Because I think pretty much everybody can benefit from a little bit more self-compassion. And it's also something that will be relevant to working with kids and students and other people because they also can benefit from more self-compassion. So, um, and I'm pretty clear about this, having taught now for more than a decade and worked with countless students, and the number one issue that I see that people struggle with is self-hatred, self-judgment, self-criticism. It's, Richard talked about this a little bit too, he talked about it the other night, that how many of us are so harsh on ourselves and it, it's like an epidemic. It's all around this country. I live in Los Angeles. It's really, really intense there. But a lot of comparing and having to have the perfect body, the perfect career, the perfect life. But I think it's everywhere. And um, I don't know about other cultures. People often ask me and they'll say, well, is it the same in Europe? Is it the same in developing nations? Is it the same? And I, I, can't, I can't make a broad generalization about that. I think every culture has its particular issue that, um, that particular issue of difficulty. But I know that the issue of self-hatred, self-criticism, self-judgment is something that people in the United States really, really suffer from. And I found this a long time ago, this little interview um, where Meryl Streep, Nicole Kidman, and Julianne Moore met with Oprah (laughs) and talked about this very subject. And Oprah said, Meryl, they were talking about how they wanted to back out every time they got asked to do a movie. Each of them said that. And Oprah said, Meryl, why have you tried to back out? And Meryl said, because I say to myself, I don't know how to act. And why, <laughs> and why does anybody want to look at me on screen anymore? And Oprah says, that's a jaw dropper. And then she says, Meryl Streep thinks she can't act. <laughs> and Meryl says, lots of actors feel that way. And Oprah says, but somewhere inside yourself, don't you know that you're the gold standard? And she says, does that help? And then Oprah turns to Julianne Moore and says, Julianne, I've heard from your agent that after every film, you're sure you'll never work again. And Julianne says, well, at the beginning of a movie, I'm scared. By the middle, I'm doubting my choices. And by the end, I'm certain I've ruined the film. (laughs) Sometimes I'll even suggest other actors for the parts I'm offered. (laughs) And Nicole Kidman says, I do that. I suggested you. (laughs) So... um, I think it speaks volumes 
that the women who are the premier actresses of our time have self-worth issues and think that they can't act. And so each of us, it manifests in different ways. I'm not good enough. I don't like how I look. I'm, I don't, um, I'm not successful enough. I'm stupid. I'm lazy. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, you probably spent a good deal of time on this retreat listening to that voice. Anybody here suffer from self-criticism at some point today? <laughs> in the last hour? <laughs> Of course. And so when you go on retreat, you get this microscope to look so intensely at all of this stuff that just keeps coming up in our mind, the self-critical voices, the judging, the unpleasant feelings connected to it. And it's really, it's, it's very, very intense and debilitating and, um, and quite painful. Where does it come from? It comes from the culture, it comes from our families, it comes from our peers, it comes from school. Most of the internalized voices that we heard. It's likely that many of us had parents who felt the same way about themselves and taught us to feel this way. And it's probably generational and generational. But the, the comparing mind, the comparing and judging mind, which can work both ways. It's either judging ourselves or it could be judging other people. And by the way, did anyone judge anyone here on the retreat? (laughs) All right, don't even bother raising your hand. I know the answer. Because we do that. It's, it seems that this, this judgmental mind may be wired into our DNA. And so there's this interesting little um, story I want to read you. Marie is doing Alice's hair when along comes Tanya, a mutual acquaintance. Tanya has the perfect life, great body, well-behaved children, primo social status. Watching her walk by, Alice admires her beauty, then relaxes into the pleasant sensation of Marie's hand arranging her hair. Marie, by contrast, nearly explodes with jealousy and competitiveness. Her teeth and stomach clench as she watches Tanya flaunt her long limbs, thick hair, and most enviable enviable of all, her rose-red rump. (laughs) Tanya, Marie, and Alice are baboons. Social primates who share around 95% of our DNA and a lot of our psychological traits. And scientists have found that some baboons, like Marie, are extremely competitive. Others, like Alice, are more mellow, less worried about rank and um, measuring up. The more rank-conscious baboons suffer higher blood pressure, a stress condition, stress-related condition we associate with humans. So if the baboons are doing it, <laughs> and Meryl Streep is doing it, <laughs> We know we're in trouble, right? But it's sometimes when I hear that, it makes me relax a little bit because I don't feel like, oh, it, it, it just kind of normalizes it. That's the feeling I get. Like, oh, it's really wired into us in some way. Now, I do want to distinguish the judgmental mind from the mind of discernment. Because there is the judgmental mind that says, I'm not good enough, I'm... I'm, I'm a bad person, I'm lousy, I'm terrible at meditating. God, the person who's sitting next to me is so much better than me. I can tell. They're sitting so quietly. They're having the perfect meditation. You know, there's, there's, there's a lot of that going on. 
But that's different than discerning. Judgment has aversion connected to it. Judgment has a sense of, I'm bad, and it's the aversion at oneself or at another person, or they're bad. Whereas discerning is more, uh, it's just seeing things for what they are. So if we wake up in the morning and a voice goes, wow, I slept through the early morning sit, well, that wasn't a great idea. I, should, um, I need to get up earlier the next day. That's being discerning. You're being clear about something you need to do to change. If you wake up in the morning, you say, I slept through the first sit. I'm such a jerk. I can't believe I did that. I'm the worst meditator here, blah, blah, blah. That is judging. So you see the difference? And we need to have discerning. We need to be discerning throughout our lives. But judging is, is when it's loaded with this, this level of aversion. If we were as, if somebody else were as mean to us as we are as mean to us, we would never let them get away with it. You know, the things we say to ourselves, the perfectionism, I have to be perfect, I have to be good, I have to be this, the stories that we carry, they're really, really profound. Many of you have heard this, but I'll read it anyway. If you can start the day without caffeine or pet pills, if you can be cheerful, ignoring aches and pains, if you can resist complaining and boring people with your troubles, if you can eat the same food every day and be grateful for it, if you can take criticism and blame without resentment and sleep without the aid of drugs, then you're probably a dog. (laughs) We have such high ideals and standards for ourselves. We really do. And so the question, as we start to think about this self-criticism, self-judgment, which is really the, this, this water that people swim in, if, uh, it's, we want to think about how the practices of mindfulness and loving-kindness can be used to transform self-judgment and self-criticism. And I will say that they absolutely can. They absolutely can. That I see these two practices as two of the most powerful tools for healing the wound of self-hatred. And I know this from my own experience. I really do. I had a lot of perfectionism, a lot of self-judgmentalism. I was, I was really driven, driven as a younger person, as a teenager and adult. I was wanting to be perfect. And I even, when I got into my meditation practice, I wanted to be perfect. You know, I wanted to get, I wanted to get the A in meditation. Anybody here trying to get an A? <laughs> it, there was something that, that I, I just transferred that whole complex of neuroses, if you will, over to meditation and worked, 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 trying as hard as I could to succeed and doing things like not letting my sli- myself sleep because I thought that that would improve my meditation, beating myself up, judging myself, because I think you've probably noticed that whatever your habits and tendencies are out in the world, they're showing up here, right? This, again, it's, this, it's a microcosm of our life out there. And so what I had to learn to do through the practices of mindfulness and loving kindness was to shift the whole way I was being. And it involved using mindfulness to be aware of the self-critical voices, 
to be really on top of it. I'm going to talk about how to do this. And then use the loving kindness practices to shift the ground of my being. To have my default mode go from uh, judgmental, self-hating, unworthy, to accepting myself for who I was. And that's been a long journey. It didn't happen overnight. It happened over time. But I have absolute faith in these practices for this help. And of course, there were other things I did too. It wasn't the only thing, but I really, really uh, can't underestimate the power of these practices. Now, in recent years, a woman named Kristen Neff developed the construct of self-compassion in a very kind of... Uh, refined way and she did it as she's a research scientist and also a meditation practitioner and so she was able to then do a bunch of research on her this concept of self-compassion so let me just explain how she defines it because that's essentially what I'm saying self-compassion is the combination of mindfulness loving kindness and the practices surrounding these. So this is what, sorry, what cultivates self-compassion. And the third is what she calls shared humanity, an understanding of the universality of all human experience. And so she, um, so what's important about this is to distinguish self-compassion from self-esteem. Because About 20 years ago, self-esteem, as some of you know, got really in vogue, right? In psychological circles and education around building up children's self-esteem. And so that was done through a lot of praise. And for those of you who who know, you know, say the work of Alfie Cohn, who's, who's really opposed to the way parents give constant lavish praise on their children and saying that's actually more harmful than, than helpful. Good job, good job, good job. When they're just walking, oh, you breathed. Good job. Um, so, so because what the self-esteem movement seems to have done, and this is what the current research is showing, is it, is it made people reliant on praise. And so instead of it coming from internally, they kept looking for it and expecting it. And it also led in some ways to inflation, feeling better than, than, which seems to be driven by a feeling of worse than. So self-compassion is not self-esteem. Self-compassion instead is the concept that whoever I am, even with my flaws, I'm okay. And so it's promoting a kind of resiliency that we can be okay and be loving and kind to ourselves even when we mess up, even when we make mistakes. And this is how Kristen Neff talks about it. She says, being warm and understanding to ourselves when we suffer, fail, or feel inadequate rather than ignoring our pain or flagellating ourselves with self-criticism is self-compassion. Self-compassionate people realize that being imperfect, failing, and experiencing life's difficulties is inevitable. So they tend to be gentle with themselves when confronted with painful experiences, rather than getting angry when life falls short of set ideals. Doesn't that sound nice? Yeah. So what if rather than having to be perfect, we learn how to be okay with being imperfect? And that actually we learn to really love ourselves in that process. And that's what self-compassion is about.
So let's begin to break the self-compassion down into the different parts and talk about ways we can practice with it. And then you can kind of, from that, think about ways of working with, with kids with this as well. So the first aspect of it is the mindfulness piece. How, our mind is this constant tape loop of, or for some of us, not everybody, but the constant tape loop of judging and comparing and um, complaining and not liking ourselves. And we can learn to hear these thoughts or feel or sense these thoughts and not take them so personally. We can learn to have a little space. My favorite bumper sticker, as those of you who know who work with me, although I heard it really good. I saw a really good one today. I'll I'll tell you my favorite, which is, um, don't believe everything you think. You've heard that before, many of you, right? It's all, I see it a lot in Berkeley. I don't see it in LA very much, but um, (laughs) I did just see one right there that said, right in the, in the um, parking lot at Spirit Rock, it said, haikus are something like haikus are wonderful, although sometimes they can be confusing. Please hand me the pliers. (laughs) Is that random or what? I love that bumper sticker. That's my new favorite bumper sticker. (laughs) Sorry, totally irrelevant. Okay. So, so, um, So we can learn to see our painful thoughts, to recognize our our painful judgmental thoughts and not take them so personally, to not believe everything we think. And the very simple analogy that I like to use that's a really good one also, I think, with with kids is our minds are like a train. You have a thought and it just takes off from the station and starts going, 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 going. And you get on the train. We just get on the train. And you've probably noticed this hundreds of times today or certainly the very first days of retreat. You just are on these trains. And you turn around and you look around and you go, oh, I've been on a train for 20 minutes. So it's like 20 minutes. It's like we've been on these trains. So mindfulness is the idea that rather than getting on the train, we stand at the station on the platform and let the train go. So it's like the thought just comes and goes and we're not pulled into it. We don't get on that train. Or we're on the train and we get off it. We get off it really quickly. Sometimes we get off it after a while. Sometimes we get off it right away. But it's a very helpful way to think about our thoughts as we're meditating and maybe see see them. What we can begin to do with the judgmental thoughts is we can label them and become aware of them. So we can actually use a mental label. We've been teaching you the use of mental labels with thinking or uh, rising, falling, or lifting, moving, placing. It's a great use of a label when you notice a repetitive mental habit to then say, oh, judging or self-judgment. Something that, in a sense, reminds you that it's true and shows you what's happening in the present moment. And then turning your attention into your body and noticing what's happening in your body. Well, there's often a lot of physical sensation going on connected with the judging. And usually we're not aware of it. And by the way, this works for any difficult thinking. It's not just judging. If we can label it, we can say planning, worrying, imagining, whatever it is, but judging, come into our body, we can 
access and touch the really intense feelings that may be under it. And oftentimes that process allows the judging to not get so out of control, to that train to not leave the station. So I want to encourage you, when you notice a repetitive or obsessive thought, to come into your body and see what's going on here. Sometimes the act of labeling is enough. Richard talked about that. You can just say, oh, judging. And then it's like, it's like a balloon. It's like when, we ha- when cartoons have balloons coming out of their heads, you know, and if they're thinking something. And then it's kind of like we take the pin of mindfulness and just prick it, and it's gone. It dissolves. And I'm sure you've all had that experience today, right? Where you, at some point, had a thought, noticed you were thinking it, and boom, it was gone. So that can happen sometimes with a judgment. Sometimes there's more there, and so that's the, it, it just keeps going. And that's why it's important to bring our body into it and notice and feel what's happening. I like to see them as a kind of tape loop. So this dates me, of course, but it's, um, it's like a repetitive, okay, a broken CD, no, a broken <laughs> download. <laughs> anyway, it just keeps replaying and replaying and replaying. And it's like, it's like a loop, and when we can notice it as a loop, we again, we bring in a kind of depersonalization, not believing everything we think. Our thoughts are amazing. I mean, we have incredible thoughts. Our thoughts make the world... And yet, so many of our thoughts lead to suffering. And so what's important to do is to distinguish when the thoughts lead to suffering and then begin to apply tools to help yourself with it in the midst of it. And that's why the labeling, feeling it in the body are both helpful. Sometimes it's helpful to bring some humor into it because the judging mind can be so tremendously painful. A friend of mine was meditating on a, at a retreat a number of years ago, and she was having so much self-judgment. She was just feeling so bad about herself. And she was outside doing walking meditation, and there were these chipmunks walking around. And she leaned down very gently to like, just try to get closer to the chipmunk, and the chipmunk ran away. And the voice in her head said, I'm such a bad person, even the chipmunks hate me. <laughs> So later on, she went in and she had an interview with her teacher, and she said, he said, how are you doing? And she said, I'm such a bad person, even the chipmunks hate me. (laughs) And he said, even the chipmunks hate me, the sky is blue. And what she saw in that moment was that the sky is blue is a thought. You know, it's just a thought. It doesn't have a charge. Even the chipmunks hate me had a charge. But it was also just a thought. For her, a set of words and images, associations. But if she could just let go and step back and just see it for what it was, just a thought coming and going, then she could have freedom. And she knew that in that moment. She really got it with her teacher. And so what she ended up doing was every time she had a judging thought, she would add the phrase, even the chipmunk hates me, the sky is blue. (laughs) Or she'd just add, the sky is blue. And, and it's a good one to do, just pick something really neutral. And to see that that thought is not something you have to take so personally. It's just a thought. You can even count your judging thoughts. You get up in the morning, 
judging. Oh, I oh I slept through the, I slept through the uh, first sit. Judging one, go in to brush your teeth and you bonk into the sink or something, and then you go. That was so stupid. I'm so uncoordinated. Judging two, judging three, and you get up to judging twenty four, and it's only like eight thirty in the morning. <laughs> you know that something's going on here. And what is going on is this habitual nature of our mind. We did not sit down and say, I'm going to think ill thoughts of myself. It happens. It is habit. As the baboons were showing us, it seems to be wired into the human brain. And so we can use our mindfulness to just notice that it's happening, to settle back and go, oh, okay, this is what I'm seeing in this moment. It's judgment. It's just judgment. It doesn't have to be, with any difficult thought, it's just a worry. It's just fear. It's, and, and this is not to minimize or diminish it, but it's to help us bring in an element of depersonalization or disidentification. And disidentification is when we're not so caught in something. When instead of it being, oh no, this is my terrible thinking and I'm so lost and in such a wreck, it's just, huh, there's a thought. It's coming through me. It's passing through me. Isn't that interesting? You see the difference? And that's what the mindfulness can teach us. We can sit here for hours and hours and hours and just notice the thoughts coming and going. And sometimes those thoughts are tremendously painful. And sometimes those thoughts are exquisite and brilliant. And we sit there like the vast open sky and allow the thoughts to be like clouds just passing by. And the sky is not grabbing onto those thoughts. The sky is just there witnessing, letting them be. And it's very profound when we get to that space of the thoughts just coming and going. No matter what they are, we can find that place inside us that, that is disidentified, not caught, not personal. It goes from being my thought to just the thought. So that's the encouragement, the encouragement to try working with these thoughts and patterns. Some people might say, but what if the thoughts are right? (laughs) What if I really am the worst meditator here? Or that's not really, but but what if what if I really should be less lazy? Or what if I really if I if I just keep noticing things as they are, then I'll never change. I'll just what, what about improving ourselves? Well, there's a really big difference between between improving ourselves out of aversion, because we feel so bad about ourselves that we've got to change and do something different versus improving ourselves out of kindness and understanding. And as we move towards the disidentification, we begin to not take ourselves so seriously. We begin to see our mind for what it is. And then when something happens that it's very clear, wow, this needs to be different in my life. I do need to improve here. We can do it with that quality of equanimity, of balance, of non-reactivity. And that's a really different way of changing just to say a little bit more about emotions, because emotions work in the same way. 
Emotions are constantly coming and going, just like the thoughts. And we can have the same attitude with the emotions, like clouds in the sky rushing by. We can do that. It's the same thing. Emotions tend to be really challenging because we believe them so intensely. We get so caught by them. But really, they're like weather patterns. They just come and go, come and go. We never know what's going to stick around and what's going to come. So someone just sent me this the other day. So she was working with her five-year-old granddaughter named Susanna to help her understand that when you have a difficult emotion, it, it, doesn't, have to, it doesn't always stay. In, in fact, it never stays. It, it, it changes. It moves. And, um, and after Suzanne, she says, this exchange took place after Susanna tells me that the scared feeling she had the day before did go away, as I told her it would. And so the grandma said to her, I think the hardest thing to learn in life is that bad feelings always change and go away. And Susanna considers this, she's five, remember, and she says, I think the hardest thing to learn in life is to remember which way a nine goes and which way a pea goes. (laughs) Those were the days, right? (laughs) So we can see the thoughts and see the emotions as coming and going. I'm going to offer you an acronym that many of you have heard before. Uh, A a meditation teacher named Michelle McDonald developed it many, many years ago. It's called RAIN. It's a repeat for many of you, but I'm going to say it for those of you who are new. And I think it'll be helpful as you continue practicing over the next couple of days. RAIN stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and not identify with or not personalize. And so the R is what what I was suggesting you do with a thought, which is to label it. So um, with an emotion, sadness, fear, anger, frustration, irritation, giving it a label is immensely helpful. And there's actually been research on this. There was a research study done at UCLA a couple of years ago where they hooked people up, they hooked their brains up to fMRIs to explore what was going on in the brain when they were activated by a difficult situation. So all they did was they put on on a... screen, uh, images of people looking scared or disgusted or angry. And then they were seeing what was happening in the brain. So what happens is when you see an image that's provocative in some way, your amygdala lights up. Now remember, it becomes active. Remember what Susan was saying. The amygdala is like the primitive part of the brain. It's the emotional part. It's, it, it, it's, uh, it just, it, it, we have no control over it. It's just going to happen. It responds to stimulus, flight or fight. It just, that's what it does. Then they ask people to, to, to label what they saw. So they had a choice. They could say fear, disgust, anger, and they had to label it. If they correctly labeled the image, what happened was their prefrontal cortex came online and calmed the amygdala. 
So you remember the prefrontal cortex that she talked about? It's the executive functioning, responsible for delayed gratification, for, exec- uh, for executive functioning, I said, for um, synthesizing information from the body and brain, for flexible thinking. This is the part you want to be active. This is the part we want kids to have strong, healthy prefrontal cortex, right? Um, so, but the act of labeling seemed to do that. The prefrontal cortex lit up, it calmed down the amygdala, and the people calmed down just by labeling the emotion. And in the control group, where they, they um, said something, oh, I think they had a choice between gender. They would say Mary or Fred, depending on what it was, it didn't do any good. And if they said something totally different, like potato, that didn't work either. You had to say specifically what the emotion was. So labeling seems to be really, really a helpful thing to do to begin the process of calming us down, of bringing in more of a witnessing consciousness or a disidentification and not taking it so personally. That's the R. The A is accept or allow. From the perspective of mindfulness, every emotion or thought that you're having is okay. What you do with it is a whole other story. So you, everybody in this room, I'm certain, has had uh, murderous rage. And you've also had incredible depths of compassion and love. And it's all part of who we are as human beings. So with mindfulness, we bring this accepting attitude, this willingness to be with what is, whatever it is. And that's part of this process. When you're work, what happens sometimes is when we're having a difficult emotion, we want to go, ooh, I want to stay away from it. I don't like it. I'm, it's shameful. It's uncomfortable. But actually, the opposite is required. Facing it and going, okay, I'm willing to be with you. It's, I'm, I'm willing to show up for you in this moment. So that's the A, the acceptance or the allowing. The I stands for investigation. So R-A-I-N. Investigating means what's going on in our bodies. Not investigating by trying to figure it out and again solve the problem. But the I is, what am I feeling right now? Oh, my heart is racing, my stomach is clenched, my jaw is tight. That's, a certain, that's the investigation. The same thing I was suggesting with the thoughts. Feeling it in our body, if it's possible. And then the N stands for not identify with or not take so personally. Again, the freedom that comes as we go through these steps, or even a portion of these steps, or even quickly through a little tiny bit of it, freedom comes from these thoughts and emotions. So that's the um, first aspect of self-compassion. And self-compassion, as I said, it involves the mindfulness piece, which I just went into, shared humanity, and the cultivation of kindness. So I want to move into self, the, sorry, the shared humanity piece. And just to say something I didn't mention is there's been a a number of research studies on self-compassion and where they they did situations, I won't go into it too much, but they basically cultivated um, 
scary or uncomfortable situations for people, like where someone had to deal with social anxiety or some other kind of situation. And then they taught them the concepts of self-compassion. And as they did that, they found that the people that they were taught these concepts were even, even without practicing, but they were able to handle the anxiety, the social exclusion better than the people who didn't. So I'm, I'm gonna, I can refer you to this woman's, Kristen Neff's website, which is self-compassion.org. And, um, and you can get more information if you're interested in the research and more about self-compassion. So shared humanity, second piece. You are not alone. The suffering that you have around not liking yourself, feeling unworthy, feeling not perfect, whatever the story is, you are not the only one. And in order to prove that I am right, I'm going to have you do a little game. So here's the game. I'm going to say a phrase, and if this phrase is true for you, I would like you to stand up. Okay, so put your pencils and paper down and so forth, pen. So this is for everybody. I'm not going to stand up, well, because I have to keep reading. But... um, I assure you that I would answer yes. So, stand up if you've ever compared yourself to others. Okay, sit down. (laughs) This is exercise, by the way, for tonight, just so you know. Stand up if you've ever done something stupid. Back down. And if you start to get tired, you can raise your hand, but stand, <laughs> standing up is kind of fun. So, Stand up if you've ever felt inadequate and not up to an important task. Yeah. Okay, back down. Stand up if you've ever looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw. Yeah, back down. Stand up if you've ever screwed up something that was really important. Okay, back down. Stand up if you've ever hurt someone you love. Yeah. And as we look around, we can start to kind of look around and go, yeah, I'm not the only one. Back down. And maybe last one. Stand up if you've ever felt you were alone and the only one. Yeah. So now let's really look around and stay standing for a minute and just see that it's everybody. It's a universal, universal condition. So let's sit back down. Maybe as you sit back down, send thoughts of compassion to each of us. I'm going to keep going rather than... Oh, some light in the room. You got it? Okay, great. Sure. So just to know this is, this is what happens. This is, this is in all of us. And it's just that simple recognition that again and again people say, oh, I thought I was the only one. I didn't realize that other people felt this way. And when we do, there's a sense of relief. There's a sense of some kind of shift or change that happens. So that's why this understanding of shared humanity is so important. 
Number three, the cultivation of kindness for ourselves and for others, but really for ourselves. These practices, we've been doing little bits of loving kindness, and some of you have been doing them for years and years and years. But it's this practice that cultivates uh, these qualities of the mind that show us that our mind actually can change. That what we practice, we will cultivate. And this is the, pra- this is the theories of neuroplasticity that tells people used to think that our brains stopped developing at a certain point, but that's not the case. That what we practice, we will cultivate. Neurons that fire together, wire together. So what that means is, if you keep practicing something, at some point it will become a habit. So if you keep practicing kindness, you will be kinder. If you want to be meaner, keep practicing meanness. It works in the same way, actually. What's so important is that we take these practices of kindness and we send it to ourselves. It's really valuable to do the practice towards other people, and I highly, highly recommend that you spend many, many hours and years doing that. But I'll tell you, especially in in addressing what Susan was talking about, about burnout and compassion fatigue and our own just overgiving, sending loving kindness to ourselves can really transform that. There was a period in my life where I had been working at a nonprofit for about I don't know, eight or ten years, and I was so burnt out. I had just had it. And I ended up going to on a retreat here for a month, and I practiced loving kindness the entire time, and I only sent it to myself. I didn't send it to anybody else. And it was like this healing balm. It was the thing I needed so deeply to heal the pain of in a sense, abandoning myself for a long time. And so when we do that practice of sending it to ourselves, oftentimes it doesn't really work. (laughs) Or what I mean by that is we think we're going to send it to ourselves and we try, and instead of feeling love, we feel everything. We feel I'm not worthy, we feel the shame, we feel the self-hatred. It all just comes up, it bubbles to the surface. And you know what we do? We stay with it. We stay with it. We bring our mindfulness and our compassion to the fact that we're not feeling the loving kindness. So we bring kindness to the lack of kindness. And as we send the kindness to that part of us that doesn't feel kind, that feels angry or hurt or unloved or whatever the feeling is, it begins to soothe and heal the places where we weren't loved. It's like the reparenting begins to happen. And it's very, very amazing to watch one go from just being judgmental and angry to actually loving and accepting ourselves through, this, through all of the things I'm talking about, but through this practice of coming back again and again to, with, to ourselves with kindness. It's like a slow unlayering of our heart. It's like this onion. You know, you bring some kindness to the first layer and then you sink in and you finally can feel the kindness and you peel the layer and the next layer is there. And then you send kindness to that and then the next layer is there and it peels and it peels. And it's just, really, it's the work of a, of a lifetime. It doesn't just heal and it's done. But it's, 
it's um it's there's something so important about trusting when it's not there that that's actually something is happening and so when it's not there you can when you're doing the loving kindness practice you can turn to whatever it is you're feeling and bring the emotion practice in so let's say you're doing loving kindness and then you suddenly feel shame so you turn your mindfulness to the shame and you label it and you notice it and what does it feel like in your body you can imagine sending kindness to a small child one of the great ways of sending loving kindness to yourself is uh, imagining yourself as a child or at a time in your life when you didn't get the love that you want or a time in life you did get the love that you want and you really remember what it felt like so we just keep going and sometimes we do it and it feels like nothing is happening so it's not like a lot of emotions are coming up but it just feels like eh this is kind of boring maybe happy maybe peaceful blah blah right that feeling so that's when we we uh keep keep going because it's like planting seeds and you don't know when the garden is going to grow you don't but you just keep dropping the seed in and going over and over and over and at some point the flowers blossom i love this story it's in jack cornfield's book um the art of forgiveness loving kindness and peace and it says in the babemba tribe of south africa when a person acts irresponsibly or unjustly he is placed in the center of the village alone and unfettered all work ceases and ceases and every man woman and child in the village gathers in a large circle around the accused individual then each person in the tribe speaks to the accused one at a time each recalling the good things the person in the center of the circle has done in his lifetime every incident every experience that can be recalled with any detail and accuracy is recounted all his positive attributes good deeds strengths and kindnesses are recited carefully and at length the tribal ceremony often lasts for several days at the end the tribal circle is broken a joyous celebration takes place and the person is symbolically and literally welcomed back into the tribe imagine if we did that for people who have done some kind of transgression it's not likely to happen although you may have the kind of school where something like that could happen i don't know and i just i've always been so immensely inspired by that but in some ways the loving kindness practice is that internally when we do it for ourselves it's this remembrance of our goodness which i'm about to get to in a moment and it's staying with us and staying with us staying we we are showing up for ourselves staying with ourselves in the face of all of the fear and shame and self-judgment and unworthiness that we've carried for a lifetime and things begin to shift and change and then we get welcomed back into the tribe of our life of our humanity we're welcomed back i mean in some ways retreat is this it's welcoming ourselves to ourselves 
We're so busy. Most of us, we're so busy. And this is a time for us to see who we are, to come into ourselves, to welcome ourselves home. And that's really what we're doing. So the last piece is not part of the, the self-compassion construct, but it's what I think is underlying it. And it's what I like to call the belief or the existence of our inner goodness. So when the tribe is saying, you did this, you did good, you did that, that is what they're pointing to is our inner goodness. And it's the truth of who we are, in my opinion. It's the truth of who, and it, not just my opinion, many, 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 in much of philosophy and poetry and art and religion and much of it points to this place of our own fundamental goodness. And when we begin to tap into it, then we know that it's not, it's like, it's like the may you be happy, may you be peaceful suddenly has a resonance because we realize that this is who we really are. So when we were talking about presence and I was saying presence has all these qualities of humor and compassion and joy and love and connection, it's because that's us. That's what's inside us. That's who we are. We are not our fear. We are not our anger. We are not our hatred. We are not our grief. We are something so much more vast and profound than that. And this is what this practice teaches us. And this is what hopefully the children that we work with can get a glimmer of through these practices. Maybe that's an answer partially to the, to the, what is the intention, the transformation piece, that we can see our own inner goodness and feel it and know it. And as you practice, you have had moments, and they may not be big, you know, bells and whistles, neon sign kind of moments. They might be very subtle, very small, where you suddenly felt a moment of peace, or you felt a moment of joy or ease or connection, or love. Maybe it lasted, maybe it disappeared, but this is you touching into what you already are. This is like the radiant sun of your nature, of your true nature, that you're suddenly accessing. Because it's been there all the time, it just gets obscured by the clouds. So as this becomes more of a reality to us rather than a concept, more of a felt experience, then it becomes more of the place we can live in. Walt Whitman says, I'm larger and better than I thought. I did not think I held so much goodness. And we can see it and we can believe it and know it. And that, to me, is the essence of all of this work that we're doing here, is just coming back, again, I said it earlier, but coming back home, coming back to our true nature, and then helping everybody else go there too, all those kids. That's what we're after. So let's just take a moment to take a breath or two together. 
And just notice as you settle in, just going to do maybe a couple minutes of meditation. Feeling your body and mind present. Noticing what's happening, what is true for you in this moment. Letting it be there. And see if you can recall either a moment that happened while you were here or a moment that happened some other time in your life where you felt connected to your own goodness. Could have been in nature with your best friend while you were meditating, resting. Bring to mind a time. And really let yourself feel what that felt like. And if something's not occurring to you, that's okay. Just imagine what it might have been like. Let yourself feel it. And breathe. And really let it be here. Really let it be here. And trust it. Notice it, get to know it. And remember, this is nothing outside of you and nothing other than you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.